And I was always very close to my mom, loved my mom. You know, girlfriends were always amazed that I found my mom every day. So, you know, so I'd be in some drug soaked holiday inn, you know, with people throwing televisions out the window. And I'd be calling my mom in Billerickin, you know, to make sure she was all right, you know, see how, see how, how she'd done on the lottery. This week on Walking the Dog, I chatted to broadcaster, columnist, and best selling novelist Tony Parsons and his beautiful Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, Stanley, who, it turns out, has the best teeth I've ever seen on a dog. It was honestly like Jim Carrey in canine form. Tony is someone I first became aware of in the 80s when he was a high-profile music journalist and married to fellow writer Julie Birchall. He famously co-wrote George Michael's first autobiography called Bear, but it was his novel Man and Boy about the single-parent dad that saw him become a household name as an author and the book went on to sell over two million copies. Tony's now a successful crime novelist with his hugely popular detective hero, Max Wolf, and he's recently written a gripping psychological thriller called Your Neighbour's Wife. Tony's a fascinating man to chat to. We talked about his Essex childhood, how answering an ad for a music writer changed his whole life, and what it felt like when his book Man and Boy went on to become such a global phenomenon. He also shared his memories of George Michael, who he got to know pretty well, and he told me about bonding with David Bowie over their shared experience of being single-parent dads. I found Tony a really interesting man to talk to. I mean, I found it interesting. Stanley lay on Tony's sofa snoring throughout. You can't get the audiences these days. Do check out Tony's latest book, Your Neighbour's Wife, by the way, as it's a great read. And yes, there is a dog in it, Ray. And no, it's not you. You're already in my book. How much real estate do you want, for heaven's sake? I really hope you enjoy my chat with Tony. And if you do, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Here's Tony and Stanley. Well, look, I'm going to get my dog, Ray. I don't know. Is Stanley with you, Tony? Yeah, he's asleep on the sofa. Yeah, he's uh, he's uh, he's there. I can he can make a guest appearance at any time. Yeah, he's sleeping off. He's sleeping off his morning walk. Yeah, the old boy. He's getting. He's knocking on a bit now. Did you take him out this morning? Take him out every morning. Yeah, take him out absolutely every morning. Every morning, every evening. Yep, we're out there. Well, I'm going to get Ray, Tony. We're going to start now. But before we do, I'm going to get Ray. Ray, come here. Okay, here he is. He's in the middle of eating a bone, and you'll know what it's like. He, d- he doesn't like to be disturbed when he's got his bone. Say hello to Tony. He's a handsome fellow. He's <laughs> very handsome, yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about taking you away from your bone. It looks a bit cat-like, actually. Yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's, there's a kind of a little, a little kind of cat-like demeanour about him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of like self-contained thousand-yard stare, yeah. So you've just met Raymond, my dog. I want yep. to know all about Stanley, Tony. Stan is a nine-year, nine-year-old ruby-coloured Cavalier King Charles Spaniel who will be ten years old in November. My daughter was nine, and she was very keen to have a dog, and uh, and we decided that it would, my wife grew up with dogs, and um, it would be we decided it would be a wonderful thing for her, and um, she was kind of old enough to go online and research what dog would fit best with our family and our way of life and their personalities and she came up with a cavalier king charles spaniel and um and it's true they're very they're very loving dogs but they're very easy going dogs you know like during the long lockdown stan and i would go out for a couple of hours every morning you know would like trump and and cavaliers will do that you know that if you want to 
chill out at home and relax and be very sofa orientated, then they'll go along with that. Um, but if you want to go for a big muddy mm-hmm. SAS type yomp, they'll do that too. So the, so he's, and he's just like, he's really my best mate, really. The person that I spend my, the first couple of hours of my day with is Stan. You know, he's, he's, he's really, um, he's really close to me. So they are, they do become incredibly close to you. And yeah, I, I just, um, yeah, he's very, he's very food orientated. He's very easily to bribe. I think he does love me. Yeah. He's very popular too. He's very, he's a real Hampstead face. You know, cause, cause we're in, we're in temporary accommodation and um, it's not easy to get a short let in Hampstead when you've got a dog. But um, luckily, people in this building, people in the building where we're, where we're renting our flat, knew Stan, and they 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 knew what kind of dog he is, and um, known him for years. So uh, so we got a pass. So it's kind of Stan got us in, really. I like being with Stan. It's like going into the bar and cheers with Norm. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a very dog friendly place. I mean, a lot of the cafes and you know are very dog friendly around here. They they love they love seeing a dog. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, buddy. Here he is. Here he is. He's a handsome fella. Sorry to disturb you, old buddy. Do you want to get down and go back to sleep? Sorry to disturb. There he is. Go back to sleep. He loves this flat. He really loves this flat. I think he likes um, a smaller, a smaller home, a smaller living environment. You know, he's much closer to us. He sleeps closer to us. He's kind of. I think he's aware of us when we're when we turn in at night in a way that he's not when we're when we're in our home i have to say he's got an impressive set of teeth tony my wife is uh japanese she's got very uh, japanese standards of hygiene <laughs> and dental care and she brushes his teeth every night she brushes his teeth every night so uh, not twice a day but every night she brushes his teeth and um vets are astonished when they when they meet stan when he has his yearly medical when they, you know, they often get their teeth whipped out because that's what happens with dogs, sadly. Um, Stan always get, you know, he's got this kind of Hollywood million dollar smile. And, um, and it's, it's because Eureka, my wife, you know, takes such care and attention. When he was, when he was, he was very small and he had to have a few teeth out and, and she felt we were letting him down, you know, because we were not taking adequate dental care of him. But it's not easy with a dog. But she's done a great job. Yeah, no, he's got for a for a dog that's 10 this year, he's doing really, really well. Oh, I'm really impressed. He's got better teeth than yeah. some Hollywood celebrities. I can't believe it. I've got so carried away with talking about Stanley, who I'm overwhelmed with. I loved just at first sight. I got a very good vibe about Stanley. I haven't even introduced you properly, and I should, because I'm really excited that you've been able to give us time today, because I'm such a huge fan of yours, Tony, and have been for many decades. I'm with um, the very wonderful, best-selling, I'm going to do your full list, actually, broadcaster, journalist, and best-selling novelist, Tony Parsons. I want to go back, we've met Stanley, and I want to go back to young Tony and right. pets and dogs in your life. Were there pets and dogs in your life when you were growing up? I was... Uh... I loved um, loved dogs, and um, I had a dog called Laddie who who uh, died um, when I was very young. I went to live on a farm. I think was the euphemism that my dad used. But I loved dogs. I, I really adored being around dogs. We lived above a shop, 
in Essex. There was a huge German shepherd who I loved, who lived a couple of doors down. And one day I was petting this German shepherd and he was, I was, I was about four, he was licking me. And he got up on his hind legs and he put um, his front paws on my chest and he pushed me over. And I had all my front teeth knocked out. And my mum was fanatically anti-pet. My mum was fanatically, you know, she wouldn't wish harm or cruelty or anything, but she just didn't want them around. It was really traumatic for her, more traumatic for her than I think it was for me. So I, I had dogs when I was very, very young, very young. And then came the incident with the, the German shepherd when I had all my front teeth were knocked out. He just pushed me over. He was licking my face. He didn't mean any anything bad, but he was even and he was just too powerful for me to to support. Pushed me over. And so my mum was would never have pets around after that. But I did have a dog, I'd had Laddie when I was very, when I was very young. And I can't and I always dream of having a German shepherd, you know, in old age. I think it would be, you know, nice symmetry if I could give um if I could give a home to a German shepherd at the end of at the end of my days. It was a messy accident um, to have to have a ch child go through, but it didn't uh, didn't stop didn't stop me loving dogs at all. And but it was really like having a daughter, really, that reignited my 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 love and and you know the the reality of what it takes, you know what what it means for your life and what it means for um, your uh, the responsibility that you take on. Um, but it's been great, you know. She's my daughter's at university now, and you know it's been fantastic to watch her grow up with a dog. You know, it's really good for any child, I think, as long as they don't look your teeth out. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of research into that, hasn't there? Psychologists now seem fairly agreed yeah. on that, that children who grow up in, in dog homes, it's really beneficial just in terms of learning compassion and empathy and 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 that sort of um, unconditional bond that you have. And there's, I think, you know, it's not just children that... that Learned that and got that because there's so many in the area where where I live. There's so many young dogs. There's so many dogs of less than a year old. Dogs that people have got during lockdown. And you do hear you do hear talk of um, you know dogs being sent back to rescue centres and all that. But m my experience is, is that the majority of the dogs that people have got during lockdown are deeply loved and cared for. Yeah, mm. but there's everywhere around here. I mean, you can't step out the door without meeting some some wild puppy that Stan wants to avoid, yeah. Tony, I'm fascinated by your childhood. I'm fascinated by your parents. They sound really fundamentally decent people. Yeah, they were. I was very close to my mum and dad, and they were, um, yeah, they were, they, they were, Remarkable people. I mean, they were they were both from huge families. My mum had six brothers, and my dad had eight sisters and two brothers. And I think that they they both anticipated having a very large family. And they they married when um, they were very young. And then they my mum couldn't get pregnant. She had a series of miscarriages, and so for ten years they were you know they were trying and um, and of course I guess the support and the help that someone in that position or a couple in that position would get back then wasn't anything like it was today some people were just you know they couldn't have kids so when I came along I was really indulged 
you know, and really wanted and really spoiled and really, and really, really spoiled. And they, they both had very firm ideas of what they wanted for me. You know, they'd, they'd thought about it for 10 years. I mean, they were still really young. They were still in their twenties, but they'd, they'd be, you know, waiting for a long time. But um, yeah, and they, and they were, you know, they were, I mean, it was a very working class background. You know, my dad was a greengrocer. We lived above a shop. You know, my mum played piano and wrote poetry and my dad, um, yeah, my dad was this big war hero. He had the Distinguished Service Medal. He'd been a Royal Naval Commando. Um, so they were, they were, I always thought that, um, you know, I was very blessed and lucky to have the childhood I did. And, you know, coming from that background, I think it put a little fire in my belly. I didn't, I didn't really, until I was quite old, I didn't know anybody that had a career. Everybody that I knew had a job. You know, everybody had jobs. I didn't know one person with a, with a career. And I think that that was not a bad um, experience for, you know, for a, a lifetime of writing. You know, it wasn't to see how lucky you are to be doing something you love because my dad didn't love his job. My dad hated his job. You know, my dad wanted to move to Australia. My dad wanted to up sticks and, you know, try his luck somewhere else. And that was, you know, that was the, the, the general experience. People were working to put food on the table, to pay the rent. So I always felt lucky to do what I do. I'm interested in only children because I think sometimes they can be because they spend a lot of their downtime in their leisure time with two adults with greater life experience. I think sometimes they can be quite sort of unusually sophisticated, I guess, beyond their years. Was that do you think that was true of you? Uh, no, I, th I think if anything, I was very kind of took, took a long while to grow up. I was very very young, I think, very naive and, you know, shy around girls, didn't know what to say to girls. You know, I had a, one of my closest friends had three older sisters and he just seemed relaxed around girls in a way that I just wasn't, you know, I just wasn't. And, and it took me years to realise, you know, you just say the same old rubbish that you do to anybody else and it's fine, it'll probably work <laughs> out fine. You know? um, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel sophisticated. No, I actually felt when I, you know, when I started in journalism, I actually felt as though, I had quite a sheltered life. I mean, I felt that I hadn't, I hadn't really, I mean, I'd experienced certain things. I've worked in factories, you know, I'd worked at low paid, low skilled jobs. And that's, you know, that's not a small life experience to, to work, you know, a 12 hour night shift in a gin, gin factory, but like on an emotional level, I didn't feel that I, I was, um, you know, I was very sophisticated. No, I mean, I can see the theory. I can see what, and I, I mean, my dad works all the time. So I wasn't really around him. You know, I can remember, I can remember every kickabout that I had with him. You know, I can remember every football match that he took me to um, because I didn't see that much of him, you know, because that six days a week he was working. And I guess he was quite, you know, he was quite an intimidating figure too, that when I saw him, we, there weren't many heart, heart to hearts because he was, you know, I mean, I've been thinking about Prince Philip and writing about Prince Philip. And, you know, those guys, you know, they, 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 they don't want to be asked if they're okay and they never wanted a hug and they don't, and they expected the same from you, you know, and it's, and, and I really, I mean, the Duke of Edinburgh's life is very different from my dad's, but I, in many ways they're identical. You know, I understand that generation of men, you know, and I understand what it was like for their sons and how their sons. It doesn't surprise me that the Duke of Edinburgh's favourite child is his daughter, because those guys were always quite hard on their sons. You know, we were never quite tough enough for them, I think. 
I can see that. And I think particularly between those two cultures, that was when culture really changed in a sense, wasn't it, I suppose? Or there was this society change, this idea of you do a job that you want to do because it's kind of creatively fulfilling or enriching. You know, it's about want rather than the need in a sense, isn't it? Absolutely. And the and there was a huge gap between that generation of the men that experienced the war as young men and the generation that came after them that grew up with sex and drugs and rock and roll. And I mean, there's always, you can, there's never a substitute for being 16 with my own son, you know, when my own son was kind of running wild at 16 and, you know, starting to take drugs and, you know, going, going to concerts and staying up all night and people were having heroin overdoses on the sofa next to him. You know, I, in many ways, it was what I'd experienced, you know, it was that whole, you know, very, drug-soaked, hedonistic world. You know, I, I knew it. I'd been there. I'd done it. My, my generation almost invented it. But it's still different when you're maybe 40 and 16. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very different. But for my father's generation, that generation of men and their sons, their life experience was just completely different. Did you always have a talent for writing? Yeah, I, I felt that I, I did have that gift and I feel that it, it is a gift. And like most gifts, the, the harder you work on it, the better you'll get, whether it's a gift for music or languages or whatever. You know, the more hours you put in, the, the more rewards you're going to get. I did feel I, I felt a bit un, underappreciated by my teachers. I always thought they should like realise there was kind of the next Dickens was kind of sitting sitting in the back row and they didn't, never really appreciated it. But um uh, I probably overrated myself, yeah. But I did. I did feel I had a gift. I felt that if I put in the hours, it could be very rewarding and could be a great way to spend a life. And writers were were glamorous figures to me. You know, I mean, all of them, all of them. Whether I thought of Hemingway and Fitzgerald in Paris in the twenties, or Jack Kerouac hitching down to Mexico. You know, I just, you know, J.D. Salinger having a nervous breakdown in occupied France. They were just very glamorous figures to me. You know, they seemed to be like immersed in life in the way that I really wasn't. I really thought it would be a good way to spend a life. And, and so it proved. You left school at 16, didn't you? And yeah. did you then, I love this bit of your life, which I call the, the Dickens bit of your life, when you worked in a gin distillery because that's a very Dickensian job yeah it is yeah it's a very Dickensian drink it's um <laughs> and they used to they used to give us a couple of cases every every night I mean the the cases of gin were really for the office workers so at the end of the day before they stumbled back to the commuter train back to the suburbs they'd give them you know give them a big slug of free gin but my colleagues and I were these young guys who worked the night shift and you know we worked from eight at night to eight in the morning and so we would come in and we would be beneficiaries of this uh largesse this golden gin largesse and uh you know we would just like put it in the horrible drinks that we drank you know like tap and <laughs> tango and just all these I don't know if these drinks still exist anymore I hope and we would just like fill our cans up I mean it was just that that and, you know, it was really um, often when I'm walking stand in the evening and the builders are knocking off around here, you know, I, I smell weed everywhere. I just smell it everywhere. And I understand that kind of need for oblivion and release and escape. It's when you're doing a job that 
is not fulfilling. He's not very well paid. You know, I understand that need, that need for oblivion. And, you know, these, these builders that are everywhere in, in Hampstead, knocking back their weed when they, it's like the equivalent of a, of a pint these days. And, and for us, it was free gin. Were you thinking that was going to be a career job or did you always think I'm going to do a series of these sort of until then jobs, but my calling yeah. is writing? Yeah, no, I, I, I believed I was going to be a writer and um, I thought if I could get a novel published, then then I would be a writer for, for the next 50 years. I mean, I didn't really understand the economics of it. I didn't understand. Yeah, I mean, I kind of learned I wrote to 100 people when I was 16 asking for advice and only one replied to me. And that was Keith Waterhouse, the late Keith Waterhouse, who was a journalist. I mean, he was really my my North Star, and my role model, because he did a lot. You know, he wrote novels, he wrote brilliant newspaper columns, drank champagne at the bar of the Groucho Club and he wore his hair long in his 70s. He was just such a cracking, great, great guy and a very generous man, you know, that, that he should take the time to write back to me. And Keith Waterhouse wrote back to me when I was 16 and said, Dear Tony, get an agent. This was just Keith. And that was it. And and so you think, right, I've got, I mean, because even now, you know, I get people, you know, in their 40s who don't realize that you did just the first step if you want to publish fiction or nonfiction, the first thing you've got to do is get an agent. And it's one of the toughest, toughest things. It's it's harder to get an agent than to get a publisher. But it was such great advice. So then I dedicated myself to that. So I was writing this novel in the gin factory and then I found an agent and the agent found a publisher. Book came out. Book wasn't very good, but it got me my first job in journalism because I was, you know, 22 years old and I had a published book. And that's impressive, you know, just as an act of will, just as an act of will, it's impressive. But I always felt that, um, you know, I would escape and that would be my escape, that writing would be my escape. When you say escape, escape from what? Escape from low-paid, low-skilled jobs. Escape from doing stuff that I didn't want to do, doing doing work that I didn't want to do. That takes boldness, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think, you know, being an only child and being a, a much-wanted only child fed into that, that, that my parents um, gave me a lot of confidence that, I, you know, that if I put the hours in, if I put the work in, then I could do pretty much anything. And then this advert you answered in the NME, which has become slightly legendary, hasn't it? When you answered an ad in the NME, they were asking for... Hip young gunslingers. Hip young <laughs> gunslingers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when the NME was looking for young staff writers, yeah. So um, when we started, I mean, Julie Birchall got the other job. And when Julie and I started and we, we, sh- we shared an office, our, our desks were absolutely full of unopened applications. I mean, there were just like thousands and thousands and thousands because, you know, the enemy sold a quarter of a million a week and very tight demographic so that if you advertise a job, almost everybody that's reading it, I mean, I'm, yeah, all through my life, I've met people that said, oh, yeah, you know, I applied for that job, like Jonathan Ross and Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys. And, you know, I mean, there was a period where hardly a, a week would pass by without meeting one of my rivals for the job. And I desperately wanted it. I mean, I really, really wanted it because that was, you know, I read, I read the paper and, you know, I loved the paper. And because I'd been a, because I was born when I was, music was really central to my life, you know, music. And it was a great time for, for bands, you know, I mean, the, um, 
Now, my first cover story for the NME was was on Keith Richards, was on a Keith Richards drugs tra- drugs trial. Yeah, and Keith was like 32. Mm. You know, we kind of the, the what we thought of as the old guys, they were very young, you know, the the, the Mick and Keith were 32, Bowie was about 28, you know, it's they were they were not they were not old men. And so that now those old the old guys was were pretty young and vibrant and vigorous still. And then there was all these crazy kids that that sighed when I did, yeah. And what did you feel like in that environment? Did you feel you belonged? Was there a sense of you feeling I found my people? Yeah, I I didn't feel that I'd found my people. I felt that um you know, I got on well with bands. I got on. I got on well with musicians. I, you know, I could go on the road with musicians, and I could. I could stay up all night with musicians, and you know, I could take drugs with musicians and party with musicians. And I loved the music. You know, a lot of the most of the music I wrote about, I loved it. And so, and so, I had a. You know, it's quite a powerful voice. You know, I felt that my lack of experience as a writer was really exposed. I felt that I wasn't very good because I'd never had any formal training I felt that um you know it was different from although I'd published a novel you know it's different because you're just hammering away at finding an agent and then the agent's finding and it's it's kind yeah. of when you're writing such stuff every week you know and then I you know I was comparing it to Tom Wolfe or Hunter S. Thompson and thinking you know why isn't it as good as that why isn't it as good as the as the stuff that I love why is it so feeble in comparison I guess the answer is because it takes 10 years to be good at anything and although people have got very fond memories a lot of people that read read it have got fond memories of me it was really it's really because I had access you know that I was you know I was in that room with Debbie Harry or the Sex Pistols or whoever it was you know that I I had that access and that that's what made it special but I did feel um yeah, I just felt, I just felt, you know, I, I felt my writing was was not where it needed to be. You know, I felt that I had a lot of, it, it showed me how much work I had to do, you know, and, and everybody was starting out at the same time. And, you know, Debbie Harry was like a young musician, the young woman from New York who was hungry and brilliant and beautiful. And so that was, you know, it was an exciting time. And um, as I say, the old guys, you know, that like, Bowie and and the Stones, they were still around, you know, they was they were still around and interested. And it was a very, I mean, what spoiled it really was there was just there was drugs everywhere. Just drugs absolutely everywhere. And people died and people more commonly people wrecked their hells and their lives and their careers and their families. And so there was a lot of um, you know, I mean, I, I got out when I was 25. You know, I was an old man in terms of um, the music business, you know, I'm, and, and I've got quite a strong constitution, but I, I, I do feel quite lucky that I survived it. You seem to get on and connect with these people in yeah. a way that perhaps other writers didn't. I mean, they, a, a lot of the bands that I met, a lot of those, the young British bands, they really just reminded me of people that I'd grown up with, you know, so it wasn't, you know, and and, and also I recognised in in them the same ambition and hunger that I had, you know, that I could see in them. They were afraid, you know, just as I thought, you know, I, I might get sent back to Billericay. I might get sent back to the gym factory. I might have to, I might have to go back to that. And it was, there was an uncertain, and I recognised in them, in them that, um, yeah, just lack of certainty about what the future was going to be like. Am I going to, and it's not, not easy to do what you love for 50 years. I think, you know, a lot of it was just purely on, on a pragmatic level, you know, I had a voice 
in a paper that was that could really get your career flying. You know, it was a short step from the NME to top of the pops, really. Do you think also, Tony, I wonder whether that there might have been a sort of integrity, I suppose, about you that you might not have had had you gone through that university system? Do you think that might have contributed to it a little bit, that there was something yeah. quite raw and real about you? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was like out of the gin factory and into the NME, you know, and I did. And really, um, the three years I had at the NME was was my equivalent of university, really. I think that was that learning experience. But I think that, that I think I was quite raw and I think I was quite honest. And um, when we moved from urban Essex, when I was a little kid, when I was five, we moved from urban Essex to rural Essex and uh it was pretty rural then. And one of my teachers said to my parents, you know, Tony should have elocution lessons because he's a really bright little kid. And uh, and I think elocution lessons were probably a lot more common in those days than they later became. But my dad was at school with Alf Ramsey, the England football manager. And Alf Ramsey had elocution lessons and talked like, you know, the Duchess of Devonshire, you know, when he was from the East End. And um, and my dad was like, just, just thought it was hilarious, the idea that you would pretend to be someone that you weren't, you know, that you would pretend you would put on airs and graces and put, you know, just it, my dad found the idea laughable. So that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I think I'd grown up with that unspoken threat, really, you know, don't pretend to be someone you're not, just be yourself, just absolutely be yourself. And that's enough. And if that's not good enough for people, then that's too bad. You wrote George Michael's autobiography, Bear. And I remember my dad, who was, I suppose he'd call, you know, he was an intellectual, very bookish sort of, you know, and he said to me, you can read this because I think he was a bit, oh, no, she likes Wham. And then he said, you can read this because he's a proper writer. That's a lovely, that's a lovely thing to hear. But I wanted to ask you about that. How did that come about you writing George Michael's autobiography? Well, I was after the, um, after the NME, I was really kind of uh, on the skids for 10 years, you know, that we were so fated and we were so lionized when we were at the, uh, when we were at the NME that we thought, we thought that, um, you know, once we left, you know, people would be asking us to be like director general of the BBC or, you know, the editor of the Times or something. And of course, nobody had heard of us. Well, nobody had heard of me. I think Julie was Julie was more popular than me. But I, I kind of so I was, um, you know, just scraping around for any work that anyone that would have me. And my old editor at the NME, Nick Logan, started a magazine called The Face. One of the early things I did for them was I, I did a piece on on George. And it was really the first serious interview that I mean, we had a laugh. We went to um, a fish restaurant called Rudland and Stubbs in Smithfield Meat Market and a little side street in, in, in Smithfield. And we, um, we got drunk together and we had a good time. And he was 10 years younger than me. And, and it was interesting. It was interesting to see because it, it was a new experience for me because they were a pop band. So when I went to see George and Andrew, we like, 50 girls in the street and it was a different thing from being around rock band and so it came about because I did this this piece on George very revealing piece about George and then we we did another one I think that, you know it was a time when he was really becoming successful I think he'd had just had like eight number one singles in America from Faith this album his debut album 
he was probably the biggest star in the world. You know, it's very, we're very friendly. We got on well together. We trusted each other. And um, I said to him, let's do a book one day when you're an old man and it's all over. And he wanted to do a book immediately because he said there were eight biographies of him in the can coming out soon. And if we did a book, an official book, it'd kill them all dead. You asked him if you could go 50-50, didn't you, on the... Well, yeah, I didn't realise what I, I didn't realise how remarkable, you know, what a remarkable deal it was. I said, you know, we have to talk about money at some point. And I and I just said, why don't we just split it 50-50? And he said, yeah, that's fine. And um, it caused enormous ructions with George's um, American representatives, his managers, who said to my agent, you know, we can give Tony... 20 grand and it will be more money than he's ever seen in his life. We don't need to, we don't need to give him 50, 50. And it's true. They didn't need to get, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that uh, it didn't make a lot of sense in a, in a business sense, but it, it made sense as um, people that actually, you know, I mean, we, we did have a business relationship. We had a professional relationship, but I, I did also think of him as my friend. You know, I did think of him as my friend. We weren't, we weren't massively close, but, you know, the night before I got married to my wife, Eureka, we went out for dinner with George, just the three of us. So we were pretty close. We were pretty close. You know, I met his mom, I met his sisters, you know, he met my family and I liked him, you know, we were very close. And, and it's just kind of, George Michael wasn't the kind of guy to haggle with you about money. If you were on his side, if he liked you, if he wanted to work with you, he wasn't the kind of guy he wasn't going to say to Andrew Ridgely, Andrew, you didn't really contribute anything to Careless Whisper. Let's face it, it's my song. Let's face it, you know, it's not really, we don't really declare, you don't really deserve a co-songwriting credit. You know, Andrew's got a co-songwriting credit on Careless Whisper. And I had the 50-50 deal. But, you know, I, it, was, it was a little, it became a little bit embarrassing because, you know, I had to say to him, you know, your, your guys really don't want to do it, George. They don't want to. 50-50. And he was, you know, he was a sweet guy and he was a kind guy and a generous guy, but he was also tough. He was mm. tough. And you don't really get to be in that situation, to be that famous and to last if you're not tough. And he said to me, uh, you don't have to think about it again. He said, I'm going to tell them what to do and you don't even have to think about it again. And it's true, it was never mentioned again. And he obviously told them, this is what I want to do. Make sure it happens. Don't talk to me about it. Don't go behind my back. Don't just, just, um, you know, just do it. Just do what I want. Do what I want you to do. And they did. You must have been really sad when he died, Tony. Yeah, I mean, we fell out. He fell out with a lot of people, George. A lot of people that were formerly close to him, he fell out with, including me. And um, I, I think he, he got, I mean, I, I had a close-up of, of people ruining themselves with drugs. George, in some ways, I think was unique because he, when um, I knew him and we were working together, he was quite a clean cut young guy. And, that, you know, a, a bit too much alcohol would, would be the only, you know, the only stimulant. And he, he really got into, you know, smoking. He was into, I mean, he was, you know, he's not into really hard drugs, but he was into what he liked. He liked a lot of, and I think it didn't, didn't do him good. And I think uh, it was a shame, really, you know, because he was such a beautiful guy. He was a really beautiful man, a really lovely spirit. And, you know, genuinely, genuinely talented, really talented. 
and, and just like a smart guy too. You know, it was interesting being around him. You know, it was in the, the first time I ever really spent any time in Hampstead was going to see um, going to George's house in Oak Hill Drive off of uh, off of Frognall, and um, it was just really interesting. You know, when he had like a photo shoot coming up, you know, he'd make us tea and biscuits, but he wouldn't have any biscuits if he had a photo shoot coming up just to you know, just to carve the extra gram off his cheekbones his finely chiseled cheekbones you know and um show me in aston martin he'd never driven and was probably never going to drive because when he took his dog hippie to hampstead heath which he did every day you know they used his old old range rover and that was enough for him he was a, he was a lovely guy and um i'm i'm sad that he's not not still around which is how i feel about you know, everybody that I knew and loved who ruined themselves with drugs. I just think it could have been another life. Yeah. And they never got to find out. I want to go back to your writing and Man and Boy, which was sort of your smells like teen spirit in some ways, wasn't it? Because that was a that was when yeah. everyone became instantly aware of you. Yeah, it took a year to get to number one, which is really unusual for a book. You know, stuff is usually big explosion when it comes out. And and Man and Boy was not like that. It came out in 99 in hardback and um, the paperback took a year to get to number one. And actually the next book was out when uh, when it got, when it finally got to number one after a year. The next book was out and at number one in the hardback list. So it was, um, it was a strange experience because it really, you know, it changed my life really in, in terms of, you know, it's what, bought me a house in Hampstead and um, it was a remarkable experience and it was really you know I started writing it the day that I learned my mum had terminal lung cancer so, so I started writing it the day that I knew I was going to be in the world without my parents and I think if you're a natural writer if you're a natural storyteller it's, it makes it easier it just makes it easier to deal with it was quite you know my dad died in 87 he hadn't told us he had cancer he kept it secret that he had lung cancer and we didn't know about it until he collapsed he was taken into hospital three weeks later he was buried and I've, I've still to this day I've no idea if you know he was trying to protect us if he couldn't find the words if he couldn't admit to weakness and frailty if he was scared I just I, I mean I really don't know it's probably a combination of all those things but it was a very different experience 12 years, years later in with my mum mm. no I was sitting there with the doctor and she's like the doctor's 215 appointment and she's given a death sentence and you know that and I'm, I'm sitting there holding her hand and it had a profound effect on me and I was always very close to my mom loved my mom you know girlfriends were always amazed that I phoned my mom every day you know I spoke to my mom every day so you know so I'd be in some drug soaked holiday inn you know with people throwing televisions out the window and I'd be calling my mum in Billericay, you know, to make sure she was all right. You know, she had, she had, had she done on the lottery. You know, it's very, very close to her. So it kind of, it started as therapy, really. And it was, it really began, began as, you know, because I felt completely, and my son was growing older. And I felt, it's the only time in my life I really felt poised between the two generations. You know, I felt the generation that came before me was slipping into the mists of time and the generation that was coming after me was growing. And I felt absolutely poised between the two generations. You know, I really kind of understood the cycle of life for the first time. I got it, got it totally. I saw it with blinding vision. So I just, um, 
you know, sat down and started writing this book, wrote it from the heart, didn't get a lot of encouragement. There wasn't a lot of interest. There was one editor at one publishing house who, who thought it would do well, who actually thought it would sell a million, but he was the only one. It wasn't, they weren't beating down my door. And then it, as you say, it was a slow burn, you know, it was a slow burn and word of mouth, people related to their own stories and their own relationships with their parents and their fathers particularly. And so, you know, so it's, so it's like, it's got the quality of a song. It's got the quality of a song about heartbreak because uh, it was written from the heart, you know, it was written with no, um, it was written with no attempt uh, to please the market or to have a big hit or to make a load of money. And the thing that happened to it and what surprised me is that women discovered the book. Women embraced the book. Women who buy most of the fiction, you know, claimed it as their own and made it a huge bestseller. For anyone who hasn't read it, it was about, um, well, people said it was loosely based on your life and there were obviously parallels because it was a, a single parent, but it was a male single parent. And it's interesting now that that's obviously quite a common thing. That doesn't seem an unusual state of affairs. But back then, it felt like that was the first time you'd sort of read about things from the perspective of a single male dad. Yeah, I think it was the first big dramatization. I think that's it. I mean, I was aware of, I mean, I didn't know lots of uh, single dads, but I, I knew two. I knew my uncle Jim, my mum's youngest brother, and David Bowie. And really, my, I bonded with Bowie talking about talking about that, that role. And because, you know, my experience was not dissimilar to his. And I would say to Bowie, what do we say to our sons about drugs when we know, when we've done so many drugs ourselves, but we know the damage that they do. We know the ruin that they, that, that they bring. And, and I really valued, you know, him as a sounding board and as someone who could, who could share his experience. I mean, I really, really did um, value it. And um, even if I didn't really agree with his conclusions, because he's you know, probably a more liberal <laughs> bent than me, Bowie. And, you know, he said, you know, everybody's got experiment, darling, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, Everyone but, except my son, David. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, I just felt, yeah, it's just too dangerous. It's a Russian roulette. And it's quite a simple story. It's a simple story written from the heart, and it just um, struck a chord with a lot of people. And it was, you know, also it was published well. It had a brilliant cover. You know, it had a very, it had a very you know, was, and these things do matter. You know, they do matter in terms of just getting your foot. I'm sure there are great books that don't, get the success that they deserve and usually when there are books that that do get a lot of success everything has gone right absolutely everything mm. has gone right the title's right the marketing of it is, is right you know the the word of mouth is is positive and when it explodes like that it's usually be, and then it gets to a point where people are just curious you know there's maybe i don't know five million people in this country that will buy books and you get to a point where if like three and a half million of them have read the book the other 1.5 million will read it out of curiosity. You know, I'm, I'm like that. You know, I think, well, what is the fuss about? Did you feel a certain pressure afterwards, the pressure of success? You know, that idea that I've sold 2 million copies. So you're in this insane position where selling a million feels like disappointing. I think the more successful you are, the, the more disappointment you get there is there is that that comes with success it's not it's not the failures that you know that that are disappointed i i feel constantly disappointed in you know just the, just 
on an almost daily basis, I feel disappointed with my career and like the, the, the architecture of my career, you know, like deals that fall through or, you know, and not things that are not done properly or, you know, they made a, a film of, um, of uh, Man and Boy and Young Griffith was really good in it, but mm. the script was awful. The script was not good enough. They kind of left out the, it needed to be more expansive. It needed more stuff mm. about the father and the son. And um, so, you know, you, you become very familiar with disappointment. I did, the pressure that I felt really was that, um, I, I always tell people that are writing their first book, they've got enormous freedom because nobody's got any expectations about what that book's going to be. Mm. Uh, but especially after you've had a big hit like that, people want, they want the same again, really. They want the same again for the next 50 years. And I couldn't really, couldn't really do it. I couldn't really, just didn't have it in me. Not that I'm above that or I'm above wanting to make a bob or two. Not at all. It's just that I, I've never, I've never got more than one story to tell. I've never got more than one story to tell. And that's the story that I go with. So, uh, yeah, there was, there was a pressure, but the pressure is really that, I mean, you don't, you don't really expect to sell the same. You can't, any, any huge book like that. I mean, my current team um, at Penguin Random House are the team that did uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, you can't really expect to the, the next book and the book after that is going to sell more than Fifty Shades of Grey. You just want to be in the same ballpark, you know? So, uh, yeah, but I'm, the pressure that I felt was just that people were expecting the same book. And, uh, and I didn't feel that I was capable of doing that for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, Sam Mendes emailed you, didn't he, about wanting to make a movie of Man and Boy? Well, Sam contacted me and, um, and said that he's always been, always been a fan of the book, but um, then he became a father himself and it kind of deepened, the meaning of it deepened and, uh, and we should do... We should do um, a film one day and I and at the time I'd had so many kind of disappointments with people ruining because it people think that if it doesn't get made that's the worst thing that can happen but you know actually the worst thing that can happen is they do it and they do kind of a mediocre job you know that's that that's absolutely the worst thing and so I was very insistent that um you know I should write the script and of course you know Sam Mendy got access to Oscar winning <laughs> Writers, you know, um, but he's a lovely guy. Sam's a lovely guy, and actually, the reason I started doing crime books was was because of a conversation with Sam Mendes. So, tell me what happened with the with the crime books. Sam had this screening for a film that he, he didn't make himself. A film called The Kids Were All Right with uh, Annette Benning, who was in American Beauty, of course. And he felt that people wouldn't. He felt it was a terrific film and people were not watching it. People were not seeing it. People were not talking about it. People weren't aware about it. So we had a little screening somewhere down in Soho. And this is like, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And we were having a drink beforehand. And, uh, you know, what are you up to? What are you up to these days? I can't remember what I was up to. Not, not, very, not very much, I don't think. And um, I said, what about you? He said, I'm going to direct the next James Bond movie. And, uh, that's quite a thing to throw in after the question what are you up to and and you know at the time it was you know sam was like the director of the donmar warehouse he was you know oscar winning director of american beauty it, you know it, it wasn't an obvious choice to 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 be a bond director to do 007 and and he started talking about the books and he said you know he loved the, the, the books were the first books that he ever loved 
as a kid, you know, when he was 11, 12, 14, 15, and they opened his eyes to, you know, all sorts of things, you know, travel, literature, sex, everything, you know, everything. It's just, um, and when he was talking, I thought, I feel exactly the same way. And he, what, what he said was, I'm going to try and capture whatever it was that I loved about those books, the inflammables. I'm going to try and capture that in a film, which he did brilliantly. I mean, I think that, that Skyfall was the only great James Bond movie and he captured it. He, he, he got it. But I went back that night. I went home that night. I thought, and he was saying he was reading all the books again as a grown man. I thought, what a terrific thing to do to read all the Bond books again. So I started reading them and but before I'd finished the first page I thought I'm going to do a series hero I'm going to do a series you know I'm going to I'm going to invent my own guy I'm going to invent my own guy and write a series of books and that's what I did for that's what I was doing before your neighbor's wife that's what I was doing writing the Max Wolf books for six years yeah and you there were six novels over six years and if people don't write I, I don't know if they realize but that is phenomenally prolific I mean that's a lot of writing yeah, and it was it was something kind kind of comforting about getting a series hero that you like and you like his world and he was a single he was a murder detective he's a single dad and he's got a young daughter called Scout uh, it's named after the the girl in To Kill a Mockingbird and when I started writing the Max Warpops my daughter was growing up she's eighteen now and she uh, was just starting to. I think she just started big school and I, I managed to put in a lot of kind of my, my nostalgia for when she was a little girl, when she was a really little girl, because she was a, a great little kid, you know, and I, and I missed it. It was a good experience. I mean, it was quite intimidating at first because the, the, I wrote the book without a contract. The first one, the murder bag, I knew this, what I wanted to do. And my agent said, if you do it, you're going to have to start again. So, I, you know, I had a, I had a long talk with my wife, Eureka, and said, you know, I want to do this book, but can't do it with a contract because it'll just, it'll be a waste of time. It'll just come and go. It'll be a, it'll be a, a stone dropped in the water and nobody will ever notice. And um, I need to cash in my pension, you know, so I need to cash in my life savings and take a chance. And she said, well, if, you know, if you think, you, you know, you're going to do a good job and it's what you need to do, then do it. And so I did, but it was, it was not, when I was finishing it, so I took a couple of years writing the first Max Wolf book, writing the murder bag. And towards the end, I thought, what a reckless thing to do. I mean, we wouldn't have been on the street, but we would, we would have had to sell our home. You know, we would have had to move out of our home if I couldn't sell. You'd, you'd have been on the street, but it would have been Heath Street. Yeah, well, it would have been <laughs> not Heath Street. Maybe it'd be Heath, Heath Street in Essex. <laughs> Heath Street in Hampstead. But, um, you know... It, Sold it in 24 hours, went to number one. And then you get a different pressure. Then it's, um, yeah. and and I said to my editor, Selena Walker at Penguin Random House, really don't think I can do it again. Because I had a contract to do three books, ended up doing six. But I said, I'm really, you know, I put everything in this into this book. I really honestly don't think that I can write a better book. And Selena said, can you write one that's as good? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And she said, well, do that. And so Your Neighbour's Wife, which I've just read in one sitting, and I absolutely loved it. And I think partly the reason I loved it, Tony, is that uh, when it comes to thrillers, character is all to me. And I feel because you're someone who writes, that's always been your thing is relationships and family and dynamics, that I feel the blend is so brilliant because 
you've got the twists, you've got the all that structure and setting, but you really are invested in these people. Well, really, I started by thinking I want to bring together the emotional power of man and boy with the thriller element of the Max Wolf books. I want them all in one book. So I want that. I want it to be very... I want it to be very emotionally powerful, but I also want it to be a page turner. I want, I want it to be pacey. I want it to be an exciting thriller. So it's, it's, it's bringing together um, Max Wolf and, and Man and Boy. And then it's, you know, stuff rubs up against each other. I was reading Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier and I'm thinking, well, this, this is great because it's like multiple genres. You know, mm. it's a love story. It's a, it's a genuine love story. Such also, a brilliant book, isn't it? Also, it's a murder mystery. It's a, it's yeah. a brilliant, you know, on, on, on any of these levels. It's, and it's a book about self-esteem. You know, it's just it's just absolutely wonderful. All these, all the, you know, it's rites of passage. And I thought, I want to try and do that to try and get all these elements, all these different genres in a book. And so that was really, that that was a side point. And then I, wa- I was watching Adrian Lin's director's commentary on Fatal Attraction. And I just thought the Glenn Close character should be a man. You know, I just thought that's men, men are like that. It's like men that kind of tend to be spiteful and obsessive and boiling your, boiling your bunny, you know, not women. And um, thinking how interesting it would be that if you like, did a remake of that film and all the roles were reversed and it was like Michael Douglas that was at home and the gorgeous Anne Archer that was out, you know, running around. Yeah, I felt there is a character in it, without giving too much away, as you say, who's um, a male bunny boiler, essentially, which has always been this female trope, hasn't it? Actually, that's a fantasy. That's always been a fantasy, this idea of the bunny boiler, because it is men who more commonly display those those kind of traits, isn't it? Uh, Do you think it helps uh, you're a father to a daughter and do you think that helps with empathy towards women? I think it does. You know, I mean, I, I, I think men that have got daughters are, are different. And I think it does shape your world. It doesn't mean we're all exactly the same kind of feminist, but I think it's different from, you know, I've got friends that have only got sons. It's just like a, a, a blind spot that will always be there that, that doesn't exist if you've got a daughter or daughters. Yeah. So I, th- I think it does. It, I think it does help. I mean, my team, my publishing team is almost totally female. And so they, you know, they're watching me carefully when I'm writing, when I'm writing this stuff. And if I hit a wrong note, mm. let's say a woman wouldn't think that. A woman would not think that. You know, one, one point I remember I, I wrote, the, the character says her mother's got good legs. And, and I, st- I still maintain, I still maintain <laughs> that a woman could think that about her mother, but they insisted, they insisted that this was a bum, bum note and uh, <laughs> had to be cut out. So, um, yeah, but, I, but, you know, it's never going to be as easy for me, right, from a woman's perspective as it is from a man's perspective. So I am, you know, I'm, I'm really open to suggestions and editorial comments. You talk about shopping for pain, which I love so much, which um, do, you, do you want to explain a bit about what that is? Well, shopping for pain is a real modern phenomenon. It's when you're scrolling through the devices of your partner, looking for evidence that perhaps they're straying from the path of righteousness. <laughs> Anything from social media to second devices and secret devices. It just it struck me as something that you couldn't have written about 20 years ago. That's what I like about it. It's a very basic, you know, suspicion, jealousy, possessiveness, 
is a very basic human nature and yet and yet that could not have existed in quite the same way you know opening someone's letter mm. you know, 20 years ago wouldn't have been the same as you know these these digital labyrinths that we all live in now are you the type of person that would shop for pain no no have no. you ever been no no, I know because it's um, you know if it, I think if if it if it gets to that stage, it's over. You know, <laughs> I think it's it's over if you long before you get to that stage. I think it's it's done really. Yeah. How did you know that your wife was the person you were going to end up with? She was eating dinner alone in a Japanese restaurant, and I came into um, I came into the restaurant with my girlfriend of the time and uh, and a and a friend a friend of ours who just been thrown out by his wife who just told him that uh she was in love with somebody else we had a um, quite a long courtship you know it's quite a long courtship she came over from japan when she was young to go to university in edinburgh and we you know we we saw each other a lot you know i would fly up to edinburgh and in, in the end you know i told the, the woman that i was living with you know i'd met someone else we had a long courtship and um and then you have the, you know, the bonds that come with time, you know, where you watch your parents die. And, um, you know, I mean, I, my, my dad was, was dead by the time I met Eureka, but she went through my mother's illness with me and, you know, her parents have gone now. You know, her dad was uh, an oil executive for Sumitomo. And, uh, you know, we had a, a trip to Japan where she just went through his photo books because he was like the, the generation that that really like photographed everything so there was like a an entire flat filled with photo albums and just those kind of you know those kind of ties you can't really get with someone you meet in a bar you know you can't mm. get that i mean yeah we have, and we have a door together and uh you know it seems like you have a lovely relationship with your kids tony yeah i well i mean it was with um my son i mean we were you know it was you know, mid twenties in past generations wouldn't have thought of that as young, but it was in my world. It was definitely, you know, my contemporaries were saying, "There's this great new drug called ecstasy. You know, <laughs> we're going to give you some." And they would like give me like a little matchbox full of like this kind of state of the art first generation ecstasy. And I said, "Don't take it until you've got like a clear morning the next day." And I said, "Well, I've never got a clear morning. I've got a five year old son. I've never got a clear morning." So I ended up giving all the ecstasy away, all this incredible first generation Ibiza ecstasy. But you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, my son, my son is in ways like me, he's like a lone wolf, really, you know. But we are close. It's the kind of relationship I have with my dad that I loved him, but I can kind of, I feel like I can remember every football game that we went to together. I have a theory, Tony, that every woman should have a son and every man should have a daughter. Yeah, that's a, that would heal the world, I think. Yeah. I read something interesting that you sit down and the first sentence is really key to you, isn't it? When you sit down at the laptop, when you're writing a book. Yeah, I, 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 traditionally it's what I do on New Year's Day. I write the first sentence of the new book and it's so, it's so little to ask, you know, to come up with one sentence in 24 hours. It's so little to ask. And of course you can change it at any stage. You can, you know, it can, it can be revised at any point right up until uh, it goes off to the printers. But that's traditionally what I do. I write the first sentence of the new book on New Year's Day. And I think, you know, a mistake that writers often make and people often make is that they're too hard with themselves. You know, they're, they're too hard on themselves. They beat themselves up. They're just too demanding of themselves. And I, 
start off a year by saying all you've got to do is write one sentence you haven't got to write a thousand words you haven't got to write a chapter you haven't you've got to just write one sentence that that it's an old Hemingway line right R- write one true sentence mm. right right just write something that you know to be true but uh, before we go I want to tell you something I think I'm really quite surprised in a nice way I I was always such an admirer of your work but I think I always thought you'd be a bit intimidating and scary (laughs) not at all and um I've definitely calmed down as I've got older I mean I don't think I was I you know I don't think I was ever a a nasty guy or a bad guy but I think I've, I've kind of calmed down as uh yeah I think you 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 this close to the grave you get mellow yeah. <laughs> do you think so yeah I think so yeah I think you see, I think you see things in perspective I think you you're more forgiving of yourself and others I think I wonder what your friends would say about you I always think I always think it's interesting to think what you hope someone would say about you when you leave a room I'm quite a loyal friend I'm quite uh, if I'm you know if I love you and you're in my life I'll do anything for you you know I think that there's that you know there's um that a, a mate of mine once said that I he said when when I got married to Eureka he said that the, the in his best man speech he said I had a genius for friendship which was about the best review I've ever had yeah I think it's, it's generous it's a lovely thing to say it's a, and it's a beautiful thing to hear I'm not sure it's it's 100 deserved well that writing writerly isolation is part of it isn't it and by that's necessarily quite a selfish act isn't it yeah, absolutely absolutely yeah, writers are trained for lockdown you know writers are trained for all this you know writers are not doing their job unless they're alone in a room with their dog you know they're not they're not doing it unless they're doing that yeah we need to let you go now what's happening with stanley today he's had a little sleep i'll have a little one after i say goodbye to you I'm yeah. gonna, uh, and I'm going to go and get him. And so we can all say goodbye. I'm going to go and get him. And then <laughs> I'll have a little, I'll have a half hour of guitar and then dog walking. I'll be picking this up and I'll be, I'll be. <laughs> so now a bit of uh, Noel Gallagher, half a world away. And, um, before Stan, but I'm going to get Stan so he can say goodbye to you. Have you played it all your life? No, in the last couple of years. I'm trying to stave off dementia. It was either that or learn a language, and it's kind of more fun. I'm going to get Stan. I'm going to get Stan. Hey, get Stan. Wait, wait. We're going to see Stan soon. Lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed that talk. What's that Stanley's doing? <laughs> He's his tongue out. I don't know. I just disturbed. Sorry, buddy. Oh, sorry, buddy. Oh, there you go. You're all right. Okay. I've loved yeah. having you on the podcast and I loved meeting Stanley. It was really great talking to you. I really enjoyed it. It was a lovely way to spend uh, spend an afternoon. So thank you. Thank you, Tony. Say goodbye to Ray, Tony. Yeah. Cheers, Ray. See you next time. So long. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.